Guys, good to see you. Just a quick heads up for next week uh, is uh, next Wednesday is Valentine's Day. So we will be uh, not having our normal meeting on Wednesday, neither will the youth or the kids class. Every once in a while, it's good to give our teachers and leaders and servants a break just to rest a little bit. And it's a special night. So if you want to take your loved one out, uh, (laughs) all right, someone someone got the eye. If you want to take them out, uh, feel free to do that. And then we will resume after that. Now, tonight I had planned for this to be my my last uh, hymnology class. Um, but after Valentine's Day, the following two weeks in February, Wednesday, so I'm going to try to do another two. And then after that, uh, Steve will be teaching um, for a few weeks. Uh, he has a class that he wants to teach. And then a little bit after that, one of our dear brothers, Carlos Pamplona, will be teaching a class on the doctrine of ad- adoption when it comes to Scripture. So um, there's a few different courses coming up that would be great for you to participate and learn, and it will give you a variety of things to learn. And then, uh, God willing, maybe after that I'll do another six or seven or eight uh, hymns after that, all right? Give me a little break there and allow me to spend some time with our students. So uh, with those just quick announcements, let's begin our evening with prayer, and then we will look at our hymn of the evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for uh, blessing us with your presence, with your indwelling Holy Spirit, Lord, the guarantee and the deposit that you've entrusted in us, Lord, that will ensure our salvation on that final day. Father, we thank you for Christ, our substitute sacrifice, our advocate, Lord, the one who pleads in our behalf day and night and never stops his intercession for us. We thank you for him, and we praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We give you our affection and our devotion, and may we do that till the day that we die. Lord, of course, we need your help in that, for we cannot do this in our own strength. We need your assistance uh, to do what you have called us to do. And so, Lord, as we look at another hymn tonight, may we be encouraged, may we see the theology behind it, and as we hear the biographies, may we just be reminded, Lord, that hymns have and great songs have come from a variety of places, a variety of people, and some odd circumstances at times, sometimes some really encouraging circumstances. Nevertheless, God, what matters the most is your truth. Lord, we rejoice when your truth is declared. Lord, we rejoice when your word goes forth to accomplish what it will, whether it's through song, whether it's through prayers, preaching. Lord, as we observe your word in baptism and in communion, may your word reign supreme in our life because it comes from your mind, Lord. It is your desires. It is your plan. And it is everything that you want us to know now until the morning star comes again, Lord. And we pray that Jesus would come soon quickly. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so tonight's hymn is Crown Him with Many Crowns. Anybody here familiar with this song? All right, Crown Him with Many Crowns. We'll sing it at the end. But before we get into the theology of the song, let's talk a little bit about the authors of this hymn. This is the first time that we've had dual authorship in a hymn, and so I have two biographies to give but they'll both be briefer than normal uh, because we have two of them to cover. So I don't know about you, but Crown Him With Many Crowns was not a hymn that I grew up singing. In fact, I didn't even hear of the hymn until 2013 when Chris Tomlin put it on an album called Burning Lights. But when I first heard this song, it moved me. The lyrics and the tune, they all directed my thoughts and affections towards Christ And I knew that I just had to introduce this song to our church. And so we've been singing it 
at our church at Sovereign Way since November 17, 2013. I actually was able to find that by looking at my documents and see when I first created them. And that's when it was first created for that particular Sunday. And so our hymn this evening has two authors. Because of that, again, we'll have a brief biography on each. The first author of the song, the original author, is Matthew Bridges. Matthew Bridges was born in the year 1800, and he died in 1894, so he lived a long life. Not a lot is uh, known about him, but he was raised Anglican, and we've used that term many times, the Church of England. And if you recall from a previous lesson that we did on hymnology, the Church of England, they had split from the Catholic Church, and they adhered to some Reformed Protestant theology while still holding to some Catholic theology. Uh, For instance, Anglicans do not recognize the Pope as the head of the church, whereas Catholics do. Anglicans believe in the spiritual presence of the body of Christ when it comes to communion, while the Catholics, they believe that the elements of bread and wine actually become the physical body of Jesus Christ, and that is called transubstantiation. That's a Catholic doctrine, and it does not accord with Scripture. And so Bridges grew up in the Anglican church. He began writing poetry at the age of 25. At the age of 28, he even wrote a book showing his contempt for the Catholic church. And the book was called The Roman Empire Under Constantine the Great. And so I've not read the book, but if you would like to know more about what he thought in his Anglican days, you can read that book. Now in the 1830s, there was a movement called the Oxford Movement. Those affiliated with this movement hailed from the University of Oxford, Oxford, hence its name. Okay? This movement centered specifically on tracing the Anglican Church all the way back to the Apostolic Church, that is, the early church and the Church of the Apostles, that first hundred years of Christianity. And so that's what this movement focused on, tracing their roots and making sure that their lineage connected back to those early days. And this tracing of roots didn't just focus on trying to find connections. It focused on something specific. It focused on church tradition and the liturgy and hymnody of, uh, of that succession. Okay? Specifically, they're looking at how was church done, you know, its liturgy, and the songs that they sang throughout that uh, succession, right, as they trace their roots back. And so uh, they began finding all kinds of songs that they uh, had not formerly known, but those in the Oxford movement, they began to discover early church songs in Greek and Latin, and they were rich. And so they started to push to have these practices and these songs incorporated into the Anglican church, this Oxford movement. And some of the key figures in this movement converted to Catholicism. One of those key figures was a man named John Henry Newman. So he's in the Oxford movement, he's Anglican, and then he uh, deconverts from Anglicanism and becomes a convert of Catholicism. Again, Newman, part of this Oxford movement, gained a lot of influence. Newman, he believed that the Reformed doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christ alone was bad. Right? Those of us who are Reformed, we would say that that's, that's the big difference between uh, us and the Catholics. That's the center of the gospel, where, uh, where Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, not imparted. 
and we can get into that a little bit later, but one is credited to our account, and thus we're declared righteous in God's eyes. The Catholics, they believe in imparted righteousness, which means the righteousness of Christ is given to you, but now you have to do something with it and prove yourself righteous, and hopefully on the day of judgment, you're declared righteous. And so we believe in justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And he believed it to be a Trojan horse. You guys know what a Trojan horse is, that figure, right? Newman believed that the Reformed doctrine of justification, that uh, it fostered individualism in the church rather than a unity of, of the saints in the church. And he believed that it led to people rejecting the Catholic Church's role in revealing truth. I don't know how much you know about Catholicism, but if you know a little bit about it, there is no such thing in the Catholic doctrine as sola scriptura, okay? That is the doctrine that we believe that says uh, that scripture alone is our rule for faith and practice for the saints, for believers, for Christians, that that alone tells us what to believe about God, about ourselves, about creation, about God's redemption plan, and what we are to do in light of that. The Catholic Church They do believe scripture is God's word, but they also believe that tradition is binding upon the church. They believe that the teachings of the Pope are binding on the church. And that doctrine, I believe, is called ex cathedra um, from the chair uh, where the Pope makes certain teachings that are binding upon the church. And those who are reformed, we don't adhere to that. And so Newman believed that this doctrine that we adhere to was poison for the church. Now, through Newman's influence, Bridges... He also converted to Catholicism at the age of 48. So I know some people are thinking, oh, another great song we sing by a heretic, <laughs> right? Uh, sometimes that happens, all right? Because these guys, though, were originally part of the Oxford movement, as Catholics, they really appreciated the songs that the Anglican church was being exposed to. But they wanted to have their own rich music for the Catholic church, and they began to write their own songs, That's why in 1851, Bridges composed the song, Crown Him With Many Crowns, okay? Bridges remained a Catholic, Roman Catholic, until he died uh, in in uh, 1894 at the age of 94. Now, again, there's not a lot of information uh, concerning Matthew Bridges, um, but it is interesting to note the times and the circumstances related to the writing of this hymn. Bridges published two small hymnals. If you don't know what a hymnal is, it's a collection of songs. It's a, uh, most hymnals have three, 400 songs in them. And so he published two of them. I don't know how many were in those hymnals. Uh, but he published one while he was Anglican and then the other while he was Catholic. The first one was published in 1847 and it was titled Hymns of the Heart. And then the other was published after his uh, conversion to Catholicism and it was titled uh, The Passion of Jesus. Now remember that Crown Him with Many Crowns was written by Bridges uh, while he was Catholic. And, um, but because a lot of people knew him from the Oxford movement, his hymn found its way into Anglican hymnals. And so it became very popular with them. So um, in Bridges' original version of the song, there's one verse, and we're going to look at that tonight in a little bit, that almost seems to venerate Mary. When you read this verse, you might think, oh, it sounds like a Catholic wrote this. You might not think that, uh, but it seems to venerate Mary, the mother of Jesus. And this is why many in the Anglican movement objected to part of the song. And that is what actually brings us to our second author. His name is Godfrey Thring. So Bridges wrote the original six verses of this hymn as a, with, a, with that, what might, you might think is a Catholic slant. We'll look at it and we'll see if it does or not. 
But the other six verses, so there's 12 verses in this song. Can you imagine if we sang this song? A typical song, if we sing and our church has three verses, it takes us four to five minutes to sing that song. There are 12 verses. We might be singing this for a solid half hour if if we sang everything in this song. Um, But uh, the other six were written, again, by an Anglican priest named Godfrey Thring. Godfrey Thring was born in 1823. He served as a Protestant minister, again, in the Church of England. And his additional verses would bring better theology, perhaps, to the song that Bridges composed. And so we have this song um, that is a, a two-authored song with 12 verses where there may be a little bit of Catholic theology mixed with Reformed theology. And, um, and, and as you sing these verses, um, there might be some that you would agree with everything and maybe some that you don't, and so you leave out. And uh, in this way, it's, it's really an oddity when compared with other songs that we sing. I didn't know any of this until, um, until I started researching this. But most hymnals, when you look at a hymnal with uh, this song, you're not going to see all 12 verses. You will see four verses, maybe, maybe five, maybe three. And that's all that they'll have. The, whatever particular ones that that denomination likes, they're going to put in there. And they kind of pick and choose, like if you're at a buffet. A lot to choose from in there. Um, our song, the one we sing it, we only sing two verses out of the 12 and then we have a chorus that was later added by a third author, which we're not going to talk about today. His, well, I'll just mention briefly, his name is Chris Tomlin. Chris Tomlin took one of Matthew Bridges' verses, whether he knew it or not, and then he took one of Godfrey Thring's verses, and he put them together. He added a chorus, and he added a bridge. So now there's two verses and two extra parts that weren't part of the original hymn. And so now we sing a song that's authored by three people over the span of several centuries. It's pretty interesting when you look at this song. But he's a modern leader, and he comes along, and he just writes another version, which we sing. And so technically, it's a pretty uh, convoluted song when it comes to authorship. Maybe some other day I'll do a biography on Chris Tomlin, but he's a modern-day author, not an older one from an older generation. And I might be inclined one day to do a hymnology series on modern songs and uh, learn some about the current-day authors that we find songs from and uh, sing together. Now, Godfrey Thring, as I've already stated, he was a Protestant minister in the Church of England. He was the son of a preacher man named John Thring. He had four brothers, one whose name was Henry Lord Thring, And if I'm not mistaken, he was the Lord of the Thrings. All right? Boom, pah. All right? Really bad joke. All right? So Thring, Godfrey Thring, he was ordained in the Church of England in 1847, and he served in several churches throughout his life. And so here's another pastor, uh, another uh, theologian writing good stuff for the church. The Thring family, they were known for their generosity. Godfrey Thring, uh, at one point, he blessed the town of uh, Loving, uh, I think I misspelled it, but Lovingston, uh, and uh, where was that? You get older, you can't find where you're at, right? Lovingston, Somerset. He blessed this town. He provided funds to help the school in this town with books and materials needed for needlework, which is decorative sewing. And so he's making generous donations to help out the school. And the town of uh, Lovingston, Somerset reports that Thring was always working to help the children in the town. And he even gave them a harmonium so that they could play and sing the hymns that he wrote. Uh, If you don't know what a harmonium is, uh, 
I know we had one up here on Sunday, the one that we played on Sunday on Come Thou Fount, that's an Indian harmonium. But a lot of harmoniums look like keyboards, and uh, sometimes they look like pedal organs. And what you do is you're moving your feet to pump air into the harmonium, into the, uh, what looks like a piano, and you, in essence, play it the same, but there is some different things that you can do with knobs and whatnot and uh, allow droning and some extra musical functions. Um, and so this is one of the things he did. He wanted them to sing the songs he wrote, so he donated a harmonium. Thring, um, he commissioned one of Britain's great and best and most famous architects to build church buildings. We have some artists in our church, and sometimes they're commissioned uh, to paint portraits of a deceased dog or something like that. You're basically saying, I'm going to pay you to do this and to put together this artwork for me. And um, this guy's name, this architect, his name was Sir, Graham, Sir Thomas Graham Jackson. Jackson was the architect behind the examination schools at Oxford. There should be a picture up there for you to see. So Just so you can see what kind of um, architecture... Uh, uh, work this guy did. Of course, he wasn't a builder. He just designed them, okay? Um, he also designed the Herford Bridge, which I've never seen this bridge, but it's kind of cool. It connects two school buildings together. It connects two parts of the Hertford College in Oxford, England. And then here's the last picture of one of Jackson's works. This is the Tower of Bresonneau's College, and uh, he worked on a lot of the property and uh, the designs of that college. And so you can see by his work and the things that he participated in that he was uh, a very skilled architect. And um, I show you these images so that you'll see that Jackson was no slouch. But this is who uh, um, Godfrey Thring commissioned to build church buildings. So can you imagine someone with that talent? And he's going to sketch out some plans for your church in that era. They're going to look pretty good. I couldn't find any images of the church he designed. But by looking at his work, I'm sure that you'll just put some imagination to that. Now, Jackson and Thring, they actually became really good friends. And as an act of appreciation for his friend, Jackson decided to build him a beautiful little church building all for himself. So pretty cool, right? If you have a friend who's an architect and you pay him a lot of money to come up with these plans, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do one for you. And that's what happened. When it comes to his hymns, his brother Edward wrote a few things that really show um, how, how much of an influence that Godfrey had on the church and on his family. Here's one of the things his brother said. He said, as long as the English, English language lasts, sundry of your hymns, or many of your hymns, will be read and sung, and many a soul of God's creatures will thrill at your words. What, a, what an amazing thing, because most brothers hate each other. You know, they fight and they, you know, give each other noogies and stuff like that, and uh, other things that they harm each other in playful ways. But can you imagine your brother writing a, uh, something of this magnitude? that um, after, after you're gone, right, or after the English language, um, as long as the English language lasts, people will be singing your songs, many of them. He said something else. He said, I make a tidy schoolmaster and pass not the lives of many a pupil, and you live on the lips of the church, so be satisfied. And what does it matter if we do the master's will? Right? What, what an amazing thing to say. One guy's a schoolmaster. I pass by a lot of students, and I'm sure I have a lot of effect on them, but your songs are going to live on the lips of the church. What an amazing thing to say. It is evident that Thring left a remarkable impression on others. While every hymn writer is a sinner in need of salvation, 
Not all hymn writers have these scandalous stories lurking in the background, like maybe a couple people that we read or some things that you're like, gosh, what kind of choices was that person making? And here they are writing great songs for the church. All right. The, the, the first thing we see here is someone, um, the first author we see, we see someone who defected from the Christian faith in favor of Catholicism. The second author we see, he is generous to schools and cities, and he has a friend who builds him a church because he was that good of a friend. So what an amazing thing to read um, when it comes to these two authors, one going the wrong way and one having a wonderful story to tell. Now, in our hymnology class, one of the things that uh, we've tried to do uh, with songs is when they have a particular structure or a particular layout, we try to bring your attention to that. Okay, if there's nothing that's super order, uh, extraordinary or super interesting, then we kind of bypass that and maybe spend a little bit more time on the biography or more time on the theology. But sometimes we find a song and it's composed really well. It's laid out really well and structured well. And if you remember, we did this with Amazing Grace um, and we talked about common meter which was a, a, a way that a song is arranged. We talked about iambic trimeter and iambic tetrameter. And then I mentioned how Amazing Grace follows a timeline. And if you follow the story of the song, you'll see that it starts with Newton's pre-conversion and it moves its way through his life all the way into eternity, 10,000 years into eternity. So some songs contain very interesting uh, facts to discuss in, re things, uh, in regard to things like that, and some do not. And so I try to bring out these things when they are present. In our song today, we have some of those things worth considering, okay? So let's look a little bit at the structure and take some time to appreciate the way the song is put together. Now, this song is not in common meter, which Amazing Grace was. Remember, there was an unaccented syllable followed by an accented syllable. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Remember that? And then there were uh, three lines uh, followed by, uh, I'm sorry, three, uh, what was it? Iambic to trimeter. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, right? It was four, four, or uh, iambic trimeter. Uh, I'm getting confused. If we could cut all that out of the uh, lesson, that would be great, but I know that's going to go on camera. But it had uh, iambic tet uh, trimeter followed by iambic tetrameter, and we went through all of that, okay? Now, this song is a little bit different, okay? The meter of this song follows a six, six, eight, six pattern, and then it repeats, okay? What does that mean? It means the first line has six syllables, the second line has six syllables, the third line has eight syllables, and then the fourth line has six, and then it repeats, and it follows this structure throughout the entire song. That's a total of eight lines that make up just one verse. So let's take a look at the first verse to see what I mean, all right? When you look at the first line, it says, crown him with many crowns. That's got six syllables, right? The lamb upon his throne, another six. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns, all music but its own. Now, I'll mention this in a second, but you'll see that there's an apostrophe in the word heavenly. Heavenly normally has three syllables. In order to shorten it and make it two, they take out the E and you kind of run that phrase together, heavenly so that you come up with two syllables. And this is how authors sometimes compose songs that are a lot older. And then you see the second part of the verse. It repeats, 6686. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee. 
And then eight, all hail him as thy matchless king. And another six, through all eternity. And so that's how the structure of the song goes. Again, it's not common to abbreviate words like heavenly, which has three syllables. Have, have you ever abbreviated a word like that? I haven't. In fact, it's a little weird to us. Again, though, when you're writing music and you're trying to stay locked into a specific meter, it might be necessary to do that so that the math of the song works out. Do you see how the song is more mathematical, right? It follows a specific structure. And most hymns do follow a particular structure like that, okay? This, uh, it could be any, any kind of numbers, but here we see it's six, six, eight, six, and then it repeats. Now, the other factor that I want you to consider is the theme of the song, not just its title. There's a theme that runs through the entire song that I was not aware of because we only sing two verses, okay? Sometimes songs are named after the first few words of the song. That's just... Uh, that's just with a lot of songs. You take a Beatles song, Can't Buy Me Love, Can't Buy Me Love. It starts with the, the, the first few words is the title of the song. Sometimes that's how people write their titles. Sometimes, though, uh, the title is more uh, than that. Sometimes it's part of the most catchy part of the song. It might be part of the hook, the chorus, the part of the song that really gets people going. Now, the title of this song is certainly taken from the first line of the song. If you look at your music sheet on uh, this side right here, okay, you'll see that the first square or uh, rectangle on your left says, crown him with many crowns. Ah, that's the title of the song. Makes sense, okay? But the title of the song then informs the theme and how the beginning of each verse starts. The author is saying through the title, Jesus deserves many crowns. And then each verse sings about the crown that our Lord deserves as king. Okay, we'll look at that in just a second. But I want you to, uh, we're going to glance at each line, at each verse, uh, the first line of each verse, and you'll notice that it starts with the same two words, right? Just scroll down from top to bottom on the left side, and then the same thing on the right side. You'll see crown him, crown him, crown him, crown him, crown him, crown him, and then another six times. Okay, so the song has this recurring theme that, and it shows the many crowns that Jesus is to be crowned with and, and, and how they come about. Again, in our church, we only sing the uh, two verses. And so I was never able to pick up on the fact that the song itself was detailing um, what the title of the song was stating, but also the 12 crowns that Jesus is worthy of. Right? If you don't know the whole song, you wouldn't see that theme recurring. As far as I'm concerned, we were only singing two verses. Two is not many. Crown him with two crowns. That's what we should have named the version that we sing. But as you can see, there are many, as many crowns as there are days of Christmas in that song. So when I saw all 12 verses, I saw what the authors were doing, and it became very apparent. And using the phrase crown is a way to say that Jesus is decorated with kingliness. He's decorated with majesty. He's worthy of serving and worshiping. And so let's do this. Let's go through the first 12, uh, all 12 verses, and let's look at the first line of each song. The first one says this, crown him with many crowns. Verse two says, crown him the virgin son. Verse three, crown him the Lord of love. 
We move on to crown him the Lord of peace, crown him the Lord of years, crown him the Lord of heaven, all right, or heaven, if you leave out that E, all right? Now, those are the verses that Matthew Bridges wrote. Then we see, crown him with crowns of gold, crown him the Son of God, crown him the Lord of life, crown him the Lord of light, crown him the Lord of hosts, and again, crown him the Lord of heaven. That's a lot of crowns. And so you can see now that the title of the song is not just the title, but the theme of the very song itself. Now, because of time limitations, it would be impossible tonight to cover all 12 verses and the theology of it in depth. And I don't know that anybody wants me to do that. You're welcome to go through. We're going to look at several, but not all of them. And so uh, we're going to look at the ones that we sing, and then we're going to look at the one that the Anglicans objected to because they felt it had too much Catholic theology or veneration of Mary. So follow along with me. We'll read the left column first and then the right column. All I'm going to do is read straight through so that you can actually read the entire hymn for yourself, okay? So let me read it, and you follow along. First, verse one. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark! How the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. So we're going to discuss that verse. Then next comes the verse that many Anglicans had objections with. Crown him the virgin's son, the God incarnate born, whose arm those crimson trophies won, which now his brow adorn. Fruit of the mystic rose, as of that rose the stem, the root whence mercy ever flows, the babe of Bethlehem. Verse 3, crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands inside, rich wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his burning eye at mysteries so bright. Crown him the Lord of peace, whose power a scepter sways. From pole to pole that wars may cease, absorbed in prayer and praise. His reign shall know no end, and round his pierced feet, fair flowers of paradise extend their fragrance ever sweet. Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres ineffably sublime. Glassed in a sea of light, where everlasting waves reflect his throne, the infinite, who lives and loves and saves. Crown him the Lord of heaven, one with the Father known, and the blessed Spirit through whom given from yonder triune throne. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall ever, never never fail through all eternity. Now, I must say in the song that we sing, that second half of the song is actually the bridge of, the, of what we sing in our song. All hell, Redeemer, hell, for uh, thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never, never fail through all eternity. Now we move to Godfrey Thring. Crown him with crowns of gold, all nations great and small. Crown him, ye martyred saints of old, the lamb once slain for all. The lamb once slain for them, who bring their praises now as jewels for the diadem that girds his sacred brow. 
crown him the son of God before the worlds began. And ye who tread where he hath trod, crown him the son of man, who every grief hath known that wrings the human breast and takes and bears them for his own that all in him may rest. You hear the gospel in that? Crown him the Lord of light, who o'er a darkened world, in robes of glory infinite, his fiery flag unfurled, and bore it raised on high, in heaven, in earth, beneath, to all the sign of victory, or Satan, sin, and death. Crown him the Lord of life, who triumphed over the grave, and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to stave. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. And that actually is the second verse that we sing here at our church, okay? Verse one of Bridges and verse four of Thring. In the last half of verse six is our bridge that we sing. Final two verses that Godfrey wrote. Crown him the Lord of Lords, who o'er who over all doth reign, who once on earth the incarnate word for ransomed sinner slain, now lives in realms of light where saints with angels sing their song before him day and night, their God, Redeemer, King. Crown him the Lord of heaven, enthroned in worlds above. Crown him the King to whom is given the wondrous name of love. Crown him with many crowns as thrones before him fall. Crown him, ye kings, with many crowns, for he is king of all. That's an incredible song. I told you it took a lot of time just to read through that, right? Can you imagine if you slowed it down and sang it? It would take a while. And so there you have uh, the complete song of Crown Him with Many Crowns. There's some rich verses worth meditating upon in there. And it might be, I don't know, it might be in the future that maybe we swap out one verse and replace another one so that we can add more to that song. Even if we don't make it any longer, we replace one with the other. And so let's now look at the three verses that I mentioned. We're going to look at the verses that we sing in church, but also the one that the Anglicans objected to, which is verse 2. So let's, let's look at verse 1. Let me reread it. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. Hark! How the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. So in verse 1, we have the title of the song. We see that. Crown him with many crowns. Jesus is worthy of many crowns, denoting his kingship. And we are familiar with the kingship of Jesus in the New Testament. At Jesus' birth, we know that the Magi came to worship the one who was born, what? King of the Jews. Right? That shows the New Testament, how the New Testament starts, and it means that there must have been some indications at a coming king in the Old Testament. Even if you didn't have an Old Testament, you're like, how did they know? Well, there must have been something cueing them to the fact that a king was coming. And so we can surmise that the Old Testament had that. And the idea of the king to rule over the Jews, it did not start in Matthew, as I said. It didn't even start with the Davidic covenant. We'll mention that briefly. That covenant is found in 2 Samuel 7, and in that covenant promise to King David, God gives a message to the prophet Nathan, and Nathan is to deliver it to David, and this is what God says. He says, David, I will make for you a great name, 
I will give my people Israel a peaceful place to dwell in. I will give you rest from your enemies. These are all I wills of God. David is going to do none of this. I will make you a house, he says. I will raise up someone from your offspring to build me a house. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be a father to him. And in these promises from God, you see nothing short of the results of the gospel of Christ, and not just Israel's future, Israel's future, but our future as well, that there will be a king that will uh, last forever. Now, uh, I'll mention this on Sunday, but no human kingdom lasts forever. Therefore, if God's promise is to come true, there has to be one that, who will live forever. And so God himself will be the one sitting on the throne. God will give us peace and rest from our enemies, just as he promised Israel. And Jesus is preparing a special place for us to live with God, just as God was going to do that for them. And the throne of Jesus will go on forever. And through Nathan, God ends his message with these words. And they'll be on the screen. He says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the promise that God made to David about King Jesus, who we see would come later. These words from God assure that the Davidic throne will endure forever, and that extends forever into the new creation and to all the rest of eternity. But this notion of a coming king didn't even start there. Although it's always been part of God's eternal will, we first get a glimpse of it in Genesis 49. This is where Jacob is pronouncing a blessing upon his sons. Jacob, if you know, his name was later changed to Israel, and from him the 12 tribes came, one of them Judah, and eventually David's from Judah, and then down the, uh, further down the road, Jesus comes. All right, And so um, Jacob is pronouncing a blessing on his sons, but here's what he says to Judah, one of the sons that became the, the patriarch of that tribe. His blessing is this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. And so we have here declared clearly that Judah is going to rule in a way that no other tribe would rule. And that ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ who hails from the tribe of Judah. All peoples will bring their obedience to Christ. Jacob prophesied. He pronounced that blessing on Judah and he would rule all nations and again, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And, um, and then we see how this story is played out further and further in scripture. And so Jesus, he is worthy of a crown and not just any crown, but many crowns. He is the king of all kings and the king of all people. He is the lamb upon the throne, the, uh, the, the song says, lamb upon the throne. And we find that in Revelation 5.12, Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain for us to take away our sins. And when he ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, the ultimate place of authority. And we find references to that in Mark 16, 18, in Hebrews 1, 3, and Hebrews um, uh, 1, 12, or is that 10, 12? I think I had a zero there instead of a colon, 1, 12. So I, po- I suppose that the next, um, the next line was taken from Revelation uh, 14, where the lamb is standing and the redeemed are singing a new song before the throne. But it starts with the word hark. Uh, we don't say that word very often. It's usually in Christmas songs, right? Hark, 
the herald angel sings, right? Angel sings. And the word hark means to listen. And so listen to how this heavenly anthem, listen to how this heavenly song is so loud, the, the verse of the song says that it drowns out all other songs. Those singing in heaven, it drowns out all other music so that all that you can hear is this song. Hark, how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. And the song moves into a call to worship in verse one. I, I must do what I read of in Revelation, all right? That next verse says, awake my soul and sing. So now the author of the song is talking to himself. Soul, wake up and sing. Sing like those who are singing in heaven and their song drowns out everything else. That all you can hear is their song. I must sing of the one who died for thee. Right? Who is the thee? It's, he's talking to himself as if, as if his soul was a different entity. It's not. It's just a figurative way. Like, have you ever done that? Like, talk to yourself and you did something stupid? Dude, why did you do that? And who's the you? It's you. Right? Come, come on, Josh. Right? You're talking to yourself as if you're another person, although you're not. So thee refers to someone else, but it's, it's him. It really isn't, and it isn't the case. All right? So in the song, this, the lyrics are speaking to one's soul. That is the thee. And um, it'd be like me saying, awake, Josh, sing. Sing of Jesus who died for you. That's who the thee is. All right? Now, some versions of the song will sing, awake my soul and sing of him who died for me. That's, I believe that's how we sing it. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for me. Because we don't use these a whole lot. And for some people, it might be a little confusing. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee. They might think that there's another person brought in. And so there's no difference between me or thee. It means the same thing. And it removes the confusion uh, when you use me instead of thee, at least in our times. And what are we to sing? According to verse, uh, verse 1, um, we are to hail him. Hail him. That means to greet him with enthusiastic approval. Do you enthusiastically approve of Jesus? Then hail him. Okay? He is matchless. The matchless king that is none compared to him. He has no equal. He has no one that can match up to him. And we are to do this through all eternity. I wonder if you dare talk like this to yourself. When you awake on Sunday mornings, do you smack yourself around with verbs and words? Awake, my soul. We're going to sing today. Jesus is worthy. I will hail my king. That's how this song is addressed. Do you spur yourself on to worship the Lord Jesus? Do you contemplate the kingship of Christ in all his matchless majesty? He died for you. What king lays down his life for his subjects? Kings don't normally do that. They want to stay protected in their throne at the back of the battle while they send everybody else to fight and die for them so that their name lives on forever and their kingdom goes on at least till they can pass it on to their heir. But Jesus says, I, I lay down my life for my sheep. He died for you. Why should our songs and why should our singing not strive for what we know they'll be like in eternity? You understand sanctification, right? It's walking towards that perfection that God has called us to, and we might not ever attain it, but we're trying to improve upon it. If we will be praising God and singing like loudest songs of praise, like we sang, uh, like we learned last week, and come thou found, should we not progress to that? Again, it's, it's not that every time you sing, it's got to be as loud as possible, but 
There will be nobody in the new creation that has any hearing problems or tendency for loudness to bother their ears. We will be able to fully just let it rip for God. And aren't you glad for that? I am. What an amazing time we will have praising God with eyes that can see him and and, uh, praise him clearly. Now, as we move uh, through that, um, oh, I just mentioned in Revelation, all right? Uh, We should strive to sing like they do. In, in, in Revelation, and we see that there were loud oceans and thunders and harps, and all that was there to point towards the, the loudness and the majesty of their singing for the one who deserves it. Now, as we move through the lyrics, we come to the verse that some people objected to many years ago. That verse almost seems to venerate Mary in many ways, and that you might be uncomfortable with. I don't know. We know that Catholics pray to Mary and they believe her to be sinless. They believe her to have ascended bodily into heaven and been resurrected already. But if you read these words, knowing that a Catholic wrote them, you'd be suspicious too, <laughs> maybe, right? Let's see what the lyrics actually say. Let's see, if, let's see if there's anything worthy of objecting to. Crown him the virgin's son. Can we object there yet? Not yet, right? The God incarnate born. Nope, that looks good. Whose arm those crimson trophies won, which now his brow adorn. I'll explain that a little bit. It says, fruit of the mystic rose. Meaning he, he was born of her. That, the rose is Mary. And as of that rose, the stem, the root whence mercy ever flows, the babe of Bethlehem. Let me dive into that a little more. Jesus was born of a virgin. We dare not ever discard that doctrine, Right? It's one of the ways that we know that Jesus is the Messiah. It was a sign from God according to Isaiah 7, 14. So Jesus wears the crown of being the virgin son. He is the God incarnate born. He is the one who took on flesh, the God who took on flesh, all right, according to the first chapter of the Gospel, John, according to Philippians 2, according to Colossians 1, 15, Hebrews 1, 3, many scriptures refer to God taking on flesh and becoming incarnate. Jesus had no earthly father, he did in Joseph, but his adopted father. He wasn't his fleshly father. Yet he was born of Mary by the Holy Spirit. The next two lines are a powerful image, an amazing use of poetry. Okay, The strong arm of Jesus won crimson or red trophies, which he now wears on his brow. Now, when we think of a trophy, we think of like a bowling trophy, you know, a dude on a pedestal and he's, or a soccer trophy, the guy's foot sticking out, or a baseball trophy. When you think of a trophy, you can't think of modern day trophies, okay? The trophies that he won are crowns because he's wearing them on his brow. Does that make sense? That's what the trophies are. Um, they are really crowns. And so simply put, he was the one who was born of a virgin, who was God in the flesh, who shed his blood in strength to save us. And he wears the crown of the, God, uh, of the God-man who died for us. So that's really what the first four lines of that song are saying, of that verse are saying. Now, the verse goes on to call Jesus the fruit of the mystic rose. The, uh, the one word I really don't care for is the word mystic. And I think that's because I tend to associate the word mystic with mysticism and uh, Eastern uh, religions. And so... Um, Anyway, that's the one word that just always bothers me no matter what, okay? Um, But let's read on, all right? He calls uh, in the song, Jesus, the fruit of the mystic rose. The rose is a reference to Mary, 
and Jesus is the fruit or the one born of her. It's, it's not, that's not wrong to say that, right? Jesus was born of Mary, right? As a virgin, uh, she was. And so, but look at what the next part says. He says, as of that rose, the stem. Although he's the fruit of Mary, he is the stem of the rose. That is amazing imagery. In other words, Jesus is the stem that gives life to the rose. So what comes first, the stem or the rose? The stem does. The, the rose does not come first. The stem does not come from the rose, but the, the rose comes from the stem. In other words, the author is saying Jesus is the creator of Mary. Okay? Yet Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was the fruit of her womb. He is the root, that second to last line says, of that rose, the source of her life. And from the root, the song says that mercy ever flows, the babe of Bethlehem. That's an, that's an amazing verse. Again, when I read that, and I know that a Catholic wrote, I'm thinking, dude really is focusing in on Mary here. But what, what he's saying is not true. I can't know his heart, although I know that Catholics venerate Mary. There's really nothing wrong with the theology of that. Not that I can find. Um, and I was meditating upon that, like trying to find something where I could be like, let's crush this first, throw it out, discard it, right? That was my natural tendency. Now I would say that, again, because the verse was written by a Catholic, it's likely an expression of love for the Virgin Mary. Veneration of worship of Mary, or worship of Mary, um, may have been in the heart of Bridges. Um, I can't say for certain, but um, I can tell you that I don't sense anything wrong there. And if you do, and maybe I just missed something, please come and tell me, because we want to be discerning, and I don't trust myself to be right all the time. And I hope that you don't trust yourself to be right all the time. That's one of the reasons that we have God's word. And it's one of the reasons that God gave us the church to help us be discerning and use those gifts. Okay? Um, nevertheless, the contention over this led to, the contention itself over that verse led to Godfrey Thring writing six other wonderful verses. Okay? So that's how it's playing out. Now, now we're going to look at the last verse that we sing in the, song that, uh, in the version of the song that we do. Crown him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave. That's how you say the word over without a V, or, right? So you got one syllable, who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. So when we come to the last verse uh, that we look at, it's verse 10 out of 12, verse two in the version that we sing, and we see that the next crown that Jesus is to be crowned with is the crown that calls him the Lord of life. He's not just creator of life at creation, as one of the verses proclaim. He is that, as Scripture shows us in Genesis. But he is the one who triumphed over the grave, over the grave. The one who gives life and from whom all life comes from cannot be stopped just because there was an attempt to kill him and keep him dead. Although Christ died bodily, he did not die spiritually. He ever lives, okay? So Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life, according to John 14, 6. And so this is where some of this theology comes from. He is the resurrection and the life, Scripture says. So crown him the Lord of life. John 10, 18, Jesus states that no one can take his life from him, but that he has the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up. 
He is the Lord of life. Crown him. And while scripture tells us that the Father and the Spirit raised Jesus, it was Jesus who raised himself as well. All persons of the Trinity were involved in the resurrection. And Jesus, his resurrection was victorious. He took away the sting of death. He rose so that we might have life by our union with him, according to Romans 6, 5. And if we are united with him in his death, then we are also united with him in what? His resurrection. He is the Lord of life. He is the Lord of our life. He secured victory for his glory and for our eternity with him. And that should lead to doxology or to praise or to worship. That is where the song leads to, all right? After it proclaims the victorious resurrection, his glories now we sing. Who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, where it says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ lives that death may die. Isaiah 25, 8, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord God has spoken. What an amazing song for God's glory. We're going to listen now to just a couple versions of the song, uh, and then we'll sing it together. The first one, um, I just found it today. I, I had trouble finding good versions of the song because they all kind of sound the same. They all have a very traditional feel. Now, I don't know about, I don't know if you know this, but some of the hymns that we sing, the tunes have been rewritten, and they're very different from the way they originally sounded. Not all, but some. This is the case with this first version. It is a version by a gentleman named Wilder Adkins. Uh, he does a lot of hymns in a very style, acoustic style. Um, and then this style that you'll hear right here. Uh, it, independent artist. And, uh, but listen to Crown Him With Many Crowns. You may like this style of music. You may not. But one of the points of this class is just to expose you to different styles of music. Because you might find something you like. And you might find another author that God uses to bring you closer to him as he sings the word of God or sings hymns as well. And so uh, crown him with many crowns. This is Wilder Atkins. Matchless King Through all eternity 
was Wilder Atkins. You can listen to the rest of the song if you would like to, on whatever media platform you like. Um, I actually like the song, but it's not necessarily a version that I would bring to our church. Just the melody is a little bit harder to sing, but maybe you like it. It's very uh, calm, it's very uh, ethereal, and it has just a little bit different feel. But the version that we sing um, is by Chris Tomlin. Again, he added a chorus and so the version we sing has three authors, but I want to give you a listen. Maybe you've never actually heard the studio recording of it, but once we hear a couple minutes of this, then we will sing the song together. Crown him with many crowns, the Brothers and sisters, I'm going to have a word of prayer, and then let's sing this song together. Heavenly Father, thank you for another wonderful hymn that contains many truths that we can sing to glorify you, to comfort our hearts and assure us that Jesus reigns and has conquered death for us, and is conquering Satan and is conquering all evil in this world. Although it doesn't look like it at times, God, he is reigning on high in majesty, in authority, in power. All dominion belongs to him. And so we submit to our king, to the one who died for us. And we give you glory now as we sing this song. In Jesus' name, amen. 